Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. I want to thank the Atlanta Rhythm Section for writing that song, which was obviously about the Stick to Wrestling podcast. This is the only wicked good podcast out there. It is the People's Podcast. This podcast is like a match that would sell out any arena throughout the entire world. Hello, everyone. I'm John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling. A couple of things to get out of the way. If you want to follow me on Twitter, just search John McAdam and follow the guy who has guys fighting with chairs and their avatar. On Twitter this week, I have retweeted a whole lot of good stuff, particularly from someone who has been scanning Gong Magazine. I had a lot of really cool pictures from the 70s, like superstar Billy Graham. Uh, I want to thank Phil Cole, who hopefully listens to this show, for providing that for us. Also, if you want to hang out with a bunch of really cool guys who listen to Stick to Wrestling, search Stick to Wrestling on Facebook and join our group. Not only... Do we have a lot of cool wrestling discussion results? We answer whatever questions you have. A gentleman asked us for advice on naming. That usually costs a lot of money for Crystal Cole. Excuse me, but we've we've come up with suggestions for his dog name. I like Chad Austin's suggestion of Monsoon. And with that, let me just bring you a little bit of an update on Stick to Wrestling. This is episode 150. I am happy and proud to have provided or to have had so much fun doing it and 150 episodes, not bad at all. If I may say so myself, once again, if you want to join the Facebook group, I'm going to give you more reasons as this show winds forward. And once again, we're giving you a little bit of an update about three or four weeks ago. I was going crazy. I'm like, okay, I've got great guests. I've got a great audience, but I was having a hard time figuring out what to talk about. Like, put something in front of me and I'll talk about it, but it's like, now I have to figure it out, right? So long story short, I did a ton of research and just started looking around, poking around the internet, and I have every show booked with an idea through the beginning of October and then some, like the whole month of November is taken up. We're going to look at the 96 Survivor Series, Starcade 86, etc., So we're all set for a while here going forward, and that makes me happy. But that said, sometimes I have a guest who has an idea of what they'd like to speak about as well. And with that, I want to bring on the return of Will Ricard to stick to wrestling. Will, thanks for coming back. Hey, thanks, John. I appreciate you having me back. And um, especially on 150, that's great. Congratulations for getting that far. It's it's been um, great to see how this podcast has grown. Thank you very much. I've, I've known you forever. I've known you for like 20 years now. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, wild old wrestling wrestling classics um all that fun stuff all the wrestling classics and all that we've been on and it's been very much a wrestling thing right we've been on the same side we've been on opposite sides we've we've had a lot of fun but yeah it's been um it's been an honor to know you that long it's, i've got a few friends that i can count like jeff forsyth also from wrestling classics this guy's i've known for 20 years it's awesome yeah, I mean, you and I have gone around the horn about, you know, wrestling and your your pal Barry Bonds, etc. Oh, yeah. Well, here's the thing, <laughs> I like the pause. I love here's, that pause. <laughs> here's the thing, John, even though I'm still not a Barry Bonds fan, I have actually, you know, when when we were really going at it on the sports commentary, you know, about and it was, you know, labor versus 
ownership. I, at, at one time I was very pro owner, very anti, you know, Hey, these guys ought to be grateful that they've got jobs. I have come 180 degrees from there and I am very much athletes deserve pretty much whatever they can get out of this and more and owners can go stick it. So um, you, <laughs> you probably influence that more than you think. Well, you know what? I, I, I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. And I mean, I think it, it, it's good that people grow, people change. You know, I am, I mean, not, not to get off the stick to wrestling thing. I am a lot more to the left than I was 20 years ago. I mean, you just change and learn and, and observe. And, and that's, like I said, that's not a bad thing. No, I am too. I am, I am a lot different than I was in my twenties and even thirties. And I would say parenthood probably changed that a lot for me, but yeah, my yep. perspective on a lot of things have changed in the last 20 years definitely the last 10 years i'm i'm a much different person and i i'd like to think i bring a little bit more empathy than i used to and i think that's the difference i, I think that's really important on the same way i mean you know i mean we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and i mean i was just livid at you know at certain people who i blamed for that incident now it's just you can't you can't just paint everyone with the same brush, you know? Right. No, it's, it's, a, I mean, it's a, a big difference in perspective on that. My daughter and I were actually talking about that yesterday. Just, you know, it just happened to come up and we were talking about that. And it is, it's a lot different how 20 years and, and two very long wars can change your opinion on how we deal with those things. I agree with you. Um, so anyway, you wanted to talk a little bit about, before we get started on the main topic we're going to discuss, you came up with an interesting idea of talking about the guys you grew up with watching Mid-Atlantic Wrestling, not the top of the, of the card guys like uh, Ricky Steamboat, Jay Youngblood, Ric Flair, but the guys we tuned in to see every Saturday morning. Yeah, I mean, the guys in Mid-Atlantic area, um, when I started watching in 83, going in, you know, 83, 84, there was a a pretty base group. Rick McCord, kind of like a somewhere. He's Rick McCord was like somewhere between Greg Valentine and Ric Flair. He was short and stocky, had the blonde hair, but he was a, a regular enhancement talent or jobber or whatever you want to call him. I try to be a little bit more respectful these days and not not just call them jobbers. But you know, Gene Ligon, Rene Goulet was a guy that was with the Crockett. He was with that promotion a long time, 70s and into the 80s. But when I started watching uh, Mid-Atlantic on the WWE Network a couple years ago, one guy that really stood out to me was Mike Davis. And I never really paid that much attention to him when I was younger. And, you know, obviously I remember that run he got with the NWA light heavyweight title or whatever that, you know, they called it. But just watching a lot of his this, the work he did in studio for those studio shows, he just for me he just stood out from the rest of the guys that did enhancement. He just sold he sold in a way that was so over the top, and yet at the same time, it was credible. And his work was also incredibly he was very believable. So again, I would encourage anybody to go back when um I guess when they're back on the network. We're on Peacock whenever they get Mid-Atlantic back up there. But just go into the early 80s and watch some of his work. And he was just different than a lot of the other enhancement wrestlers at the time. I mean, a couple of things. Number one, earlier this week, 
I spent like two or three minutes going nuts looking for WWE Network on my Roku. That's how absent-minded <laughs> I have become as I've grown older. I'm going right past Peacock. Where is WWE Network? Mike Davis, I mean, he was really good. I remember watching him in Georgia in the early 80s. And, you know, an enhancement guy, but he seemed a little bit better than your average enhancement guy. And have you seen his work as Dusty Rhodes in Florida? I've read about it and I've seen a little bit of it. And that's one thing that I remembered from the time in the aftermags when he joined up with Kevin Sullivan and, and he got, you know, what for him had to have been the biggest push he had ever gotten, you know, being able to get that status, get the TV time, get the mic time, and then have a couple matches against Dusty Rhodes. That had to be a big, not just a thrill for him, but that had to be probably some of the better money he made when he was working down in Florida. And it, it seems like he got more of a push down in Florida than he did in some of the other territories. Although I think he got a decent push in Mid-Atlantic coming when they put the junior heavyweight title on him. And then, you know, he had that tag team, um, the rock and roll RPMs, which, you know, was bad. On, it was bad. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I never enjoyed it. I mean, I prefer them to the new breed, but, yeah, I mean, but again, that was it was more than he was getting before that. So he's just one of those guys that never completely broke through for whatever reason. But he definitely, like I said, he just he worked differently than some of the other guys with his talent level and charisma. And I think I think it paid off. And I even watched uh, he did a, a TV match with Flair and Flair was incredibly generous with him. In that match, um, Mike Rotundo's doing um, the commentary on it. I mean, but it's a good match. I mean, people always talk about the George South match, you know, where, you know, Ric Flair went in and said, hey, you're, you're Dusty Rose tonight or you're Ricky Steamboat tonight. He pretty much did the same thing with Mike Davis in that match. He, he let Mike Davis out of a, a lot of credible offense and he didn't even beat him with a figure four. He, he did a backslide to beat him with that. So again, it was just a lot different. Um, I think he, Based on what I can see, it seems like he had a lot of respect from the other guys he was in the ring with. Yeah, you didn't see, you only saw a little bit of his Florida work as Dusty Rhodes because it, it didn't last. It lasted, I want to say, like two weeks, but it was phenomenal. The, the idea was that Kevin Sullivan had hypnotized Mike Davis into thinking he was Dusty Rhodes. And that sounds corny on paper, but it was really good on television. Right. Well, you so, know, sometimes it works out. Sometimes, you know, they're. There might be someone that say that that exposes the business, but having angles like that definitely have a place in the crazy sport. I, I agree with you. I thought it was to this day. I thought it was really good. I thought it was really good when it was happening. I mean, you know, you talk about Mike Davis. I mean, he was a part of you growing up. I mean, you must have seen him wrestle, you know, 40 times a year on television, I'm guessing, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, he was on every Saturday night. He was definitely on just about everything, especially from, I would say, 82, because I'd go back and watch. I pick pick up Mid-Atlantic where it started on the network at 80, late 81. I don't think that there's an episode that runs from late 81 until 1983 if he was in the area, he was he was at the television tapes. He was on every show. And he and again, he got some pretty good features. I mean, there was one match where they're trying. They they must have repackaged the great Kabuki three or four times prior to Gary Hart managing him. And he had 
had a match against Kabuki and again, just puts him over huge. I mean, you know, it's, it's a squash, but he didn't go down without a fight. He just was overmatched. But again, he sells it in a way that you're like, yeah, that guy, he just, you know, that poor some bitch just got, was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, he's not a bad wrestler. No, and you, you look at a guy like that, you know, he's young. You think he might have a future. Unfortunately, that future peaked as the, a member of the anorexic rock and roll express known as the RPMs. That was not, <laughs> not a good gimmick at all. It was like a smaller Morton Gibson, but that's the thing like Mike Davis, you know, I was on a message board, a Facebook message board with an old WWF guy named Davey O'Hannon and Davey was, you know, he was a, probably a step above enhancement talent, but he lost on TV close to hundred percent of the time. But, you know, I told him, I said, hey, you know, thank you. You were part of me growing up. You were, you were part of my life. Guys like Davey O'Hannon, Frank Williams, Steve King, uh, you know, all of them. They, they were part of your life. And, and same thing with Mike Davis. Yeah. You know, you go back and look at those, those matches, the 70s and 80s, when, when they were working with the enhancement guys. It was, you know, we think a lot in terms of some of those WWF squashes in the late 80s, early 90s. You know, where there's really you, nobody gets any credible offense. You, you know, it's a lot different on Mid-Atlantic. I mean, some of those matches would go six or seven minutes and start off, you know, really scientific. And with, you know, a lot of the rest holds and a lot of the inner work between the headlock and the rollovers and all that. So, you know, those guys had to be talented. It's just curious to see how, you know, so many guys came through Mid-Atlantic. Mike Davis never got there but Don Carnoodle at least from a mid-Atlantic standpoint had a really good run and he started out as that credible enhancement guy too there's a lot of matches where he loses every week but he also gets a lot of credible offense but look at some of the other you know Rick Rude was there for a short time before he moved on so I think a lot of guys came through the area cut their teeth on that wrestling and moved on Mid-Atlantic and Georgia were similar in a lot of ways because when I grew up watching WWF, obviously, and then for a while I got both Mid-South and later Florida on cable, and they all kind of did the same thing with enhancement talent. It was a one-sided deal, and then I started getting Georgia on cable, and Georgia, every match was a contest. Like, no matter what, even if it was the babyface who's going to win the match or the heel, the guy on the bottom, the prelim guy, actually fought back, and the match was competitive at least for two or three minutes. And then, you know, the top guy, his skill set was just greater than this guy, and he wore him down and beat him. But they were good matches. Yeah. No, I mean, it's definitely, I, I go back and look at those old Mid-Atlantic matches, and it's watchable just because of the wrestling. Because it sure as heck isn't the promos, and it sure as heck isn't the production value, because... Promos were really not great. The, the production values were awful. The sound was bad. The wrestling was really good. And you, you get to see some of the best guys come through. And I can see at that point in time, had I been you know, an adult, I could see where that would have, I would have had the appreciation to say, hey, I'd like to go out and, and see some of these matches in person. Just again, because you weren't really getting the top level matchups like we get now, but that's a whole different thing. The business has shifted. Yeah, definitely the business has changed. And I mean, I mean, I remember the day I got world started getting world class championship wrestling up here in Boston and being just taken aback by the fact that I was getting like Michael Hayes versus Kerry Von Erich free on TV. 
And then the day where I was I was getting Ric Flair defending the NWA title against Kevin Von Erich on free TV, like something the WWF would never do in a million years. Right. And that's not a lot, you know, and we only did that. You would get a major match on Mid-Atlantic, but only in furtherance of a bigger angle. And usually, you know, sometimes it would end square, but usually it was, again, in furtherance of a, of a longer term angle and not just the match itself or you know, or they'd show title changes that happen. Like if a title changed world tag team titles or U.S. title um, happened at a house show where they, quote unquote, happened to be recording, you'd get some of that, but you'd never get the full match. You would just get clips of it from the film. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the old school mentality was if you give it away on TV, people won't come to the arenas. But that turned out to be a complete myth. I mean, Saturday night's main event top-level matches from day one, you know, Hulk Hogan defending the title, and it did not negatively affect the houses. No, I don't think so. I mean, I we would have gone, you know, I would have been clamoring to go to Starcade or, you know, Silver's, some of the Greensboro matches as much, you know, as much if I had been able to see top-level matches on TV otherwise. I mean, there's no replacement. It's the same as any kind of sport. There's nothing like being there in person. There's nothing like watching a wrestling match in person. It's an entirely different experience, and you can't replicate that. You, you can't replicate it anywhere else. No, I, you took the words right out of my mouth. I was just about to say I can watch you know, 162 Red Sox games on TV every year, yet somehow Fenway Park is sold out every single time. But with that said, episode 150, here we are. It drops April 23rd, 2021, which means that on Tuesday the 27th, a few days after it drops, we celebrate an important anniversary, or is it important? I don't know. Tommy Rich won the NWA title on Tuesday, April 27th, 1981 in Augusta, Georgia. We're going to talk a little bit about that show and the title change itself. Uh, let's go over the card real quick. Will Robert Gibson opens up uh, defeating the French Angel, who I'm assuming is Frank Morell. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I looked for some of these matches, you know, that there's very little film on any of these. Obviously, no Robert Gibson from his Rock and Roll Express. I know he was fairly popular coming up, wrestled, obviously, Tennessee, Georgia, that area. He had a brother. Did he have? A, he had a brother who was also in the business, and I think they tagged a little bit. But Ricky Gibson. Um, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Robert got career break of a lifetime when Jerry Lawler came up with the idea of the Rock and Roll Express because I have the feeling... As talented as he was, his career would have absolutely, you know, just completely petered out if he had not gotten that gimmick. Well, he had to have Ricky Morton to get over, right? I mean, you know, otherwise he'd probably just been like a Mike Davis. I mean, talented, he'd be really great, but couldn't talk and really wasn't going to draw any money. You stick him with a guy like Ricky Morton who can talk all day and can sell his ass off. I think that is pretty fortunate for him. I'd say that. Robert Gibson probably made up for some of Ricky Morton's weaknesses, too. So, again, it's just one of those things where it's just a perfect partnership and it worked out. As much as I hated those guys um, <laughs> being a 17, you know, 16, 17 year old pulling for heels, hated those guys. But, you know, in retrospect, you got to admire what they were able to accomplish over, you know, four or five years span of time. Yeah, Robert was, he was almost the perfect number two guy in the Rock and Roll Express. I, I don't think it would have worked if you had two Ricky Mortons. Like, you had Ricky, who was the, the front man of the team, and Robert, who didn't take up too much of his spotlight. 
it was, he played his role well, and that that's a compliment. That's not a knock. No, I mean, I think the best athletes in general are, you know, I'm not talking about just in wrestling, I'm talking in any sport. The best athletes are the ones that can play with inside themselves and they don't do more than their talent or skill set lets them do. He never pushed past that. And in doing that, he always looked really good in the ring. He was never a distraction during TV. He's a professional. And I think that's probably the highest compliment you can say about anybody. He was a professional and he did his job. One of the greatest tag teams of all time, Rock and Roll Express. And this is when Robert was just starting out. Jerry Oates defeated a very young Jim Duggan. Jim Duggan had just gotten done being an underneath guy in the WWF. But even when he was in the WWF as a prelim guy, as a, a Mike Davis type, he had something and he certainly did. At the time, at this time, was he wrestling more face or again, he was just an underneath guy without any real one way or the other. I just, again, I don't go that far back on Hexall Duggan. I know he did work as a heel quite a bit before he really caught on for Watts, but I I don't know when he was really working that heel stuff. He was working as a heel at this point. He was always, he was usually a baby face in the WWF as an underneath guy. I mean, um, but here he's in Georgia and he's close to getting a push when Hayes and Gordy split up. Duggan was Terry Gordy's partner for a little while. And then by the end of the 81, beginning of 82, he was getting a push, kind of doing a caveman gimmick in Southwest. And then <laughs> Watts found him. And, you know, the guy used to be a linebacker for SMU. So Watts is into him and a star is born. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to, I mean, you look at a lot of those guys that worked for Watts during that time and the guys that Watts made stars, Junkyard Dog, Duggan, I would even say. He's the one that put DiBiase over the top into superstar. I mean, he, he really they did a lot of crazy things down there, and it really worked. Although they yeah. didn't get paid very well. <laughs> they, the, the expression was, you'll make twice as much as you would anywhere else and half as much as you should make. Um, exactly. Andre the Giant, big night in Augusta. Andre the Giant shows up, and he beats the Mongolian Stomper. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's also during this time it's before, you know, I'm not sure when Vince pulled Andre off the road to pick up dates with all the other territories, but I think we're getting awful close before, you know, within a two or three years before he becomes exclusive to WWF. But I, I would imagine for a Monday or a Tuesday night in Augusta, that's a pretty big draw. And from what I understand about how, and we'll get into this later when we talk about the main you know, it sounds like Barnett's pulling out all the stop to draw a big house because he needed to draw a big house. Yeah, I mean, they were pushing a big Mongolian stomper versus Andre feud and, you know, calling Mongolian stomper the seventh wonder of the world to get the thing rolling. And I think he, <laughs> he jumped Andre on TV. But anyway, yeah, I mean, Vince, more and more as the 80s roll, as the early 80s rolled on, Andre seemed to be spending more and more time in the WWF. And then finally, I think his last appearance for an outside the WWF promotion was September 1984 for World Class. And by then, you know, Vince had already declared war on the rest of the world. Oh, yeah. I had forgotten all about that World Class match, but I remember that. It was, it was uh, Andre and Iceman Parsons against the Super Destroyers, I think. And that was it for Andre. I remember seeing that on TV and saying, you know, wow, Andre's working world class. That's odd. But that's because 
Vince wanted to use the Von Erics. Anyway, right. another big match. Mr. Wrestling 2, a local legend, and Ted DiBiase defeat the fabulous Freebirds, Terry Gordy and Buddy Roberts. I imagine that had to be a really good match. Again, I, I guess this is when DiBiase was working face. And I don't know, did he, prior to his run as a heel against Rich a couple years later, did he do any heel work down in Georgia? Not in Georgia, no. As okay. a matter of fact, I was—I remember you know, reading about Ted DiBiase's turn in the magazines and just being completely stunned because he struck me as the ultimate white meat babyface type that was going to be, you know, that for the rest of his career. And he's the best heel I've ever seen. He could have credibly, and again, we'll, we'll, of all the people on that card that I would have thought could have been a future, a credible long-term future world champion, I think Ted DiBiase fit that bill. I'm I'm always surprised that he didn't. I guess it's just having to come up against, you know, somebody like Ric Flair who can go and travel and work that style. But Ted DiBiase could could have been a credible NWA champion. I really do believe that. I believe it as well. And from all sources, there are variants on the, the, the details of the story. But Ted DiBiase was supposed to get uh, an NWA title run which somehow wound up in the hands of Dusty Rhodes. Well, that sounds about right. Um, <laughs> and again, I guess, I don't know, I, that's just hot shot in the belt, because, again, the when we talk about the Tommy Rich angle and talk about all that, and you talk about the world title, you, you've got the traveling and all that. I just never understood, the more I understood wrestling, is you put the belt on guys that can't do that schedule or don't want to do the schedule. I think stability for at that time, stability for the belt meant a lot more than, you know, just popping an angle here or there. But yeah, I've, I've never been a fan of dusty Rhodes as NWA champ. I would have much rather seen Teddy Biasi in there. Well, that was what was supposed to happen. And for however it worked out, I mean, what I heard a long time ago, which may not be true. DiBiase was supposed to get a big push during this run in Georgia, have him on national cable TV, and eventually put the belt on him for two or three months, give it to Flair, and have DiBiase versus Flair be the 1980s version of Jack Briscoe versus Dory Funk Jr. And it has been alleged that Dusty manipulated the situation so that Ted DiBiase never got the push he was supposed to get, and Dusty wound up with the belt. That's the story I heard many moons ago. Um, it's incredibly believable and disappointing. Um, yeah. But, you know, especially when you look at all the all the angles that he got himself involved with when he came to um, Mid-Atlantic and all that. So it, it sounds about on-brand, but at the same time, I don't know that things didn't work out better for DBRC in the long run, obviously. They may have just with that that run as as a million dollar man. Yeah, uh, I mean, it was one of the greatest gimmicks of all time. And if you think about it, this kind of just dropped into my mind. We had the 70s feud of the decade in the NWA was Jack Briscoe versus Dory Funk Jr. I mean, really, Flair versus Rhodes turned out to be NWA's feud of the decade. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was we were spoon fed that pretty heavily. And I'm, you know, I'm sure they toured it around. I think long term, I, I, I look back on that feud with with fond memories. I, it would have been more interesting to see if Flair's main rival had been someone 
I could easily have seen that become a Magnum PA if Magnum hadn't had the the accident. I mean, we we covered Magnum, I think, the last time we talked. But, we did. You know, I, I think that could have possibly overshadowed anything Dusty did. But again, we we got what we got, and going to some of the matches that I got to see and and everything, you know, and experience that firsthand here in the area. There was a lot of entertaining wrestling around it. Yeah, definitely. And finally. If we thought this was just going to be another night, uh, another Monday night in Augusta, Georgia, not only do we get Andre the Giant, we get Mr. Wrestling 2, we get the Freebirds who are a, a bit of a, what's the word I'm looking for, a sensation in Georgia when they first started out. Tommy Rich defeats Harley Race for the NWA Championship. Will, now you weren't <laughs> yet a wrestling fan, but what was your reaction when you found out that Tommy Rich won the belt from Harley Race on this night? Yeah, so I, I found out, I, I started watching wrestling in mid-1983 and, you know, started with the Aftermags. That's all I had. I didn't have access to cable. I didn't have access. I didn't know who Dave Meltzer was or any of that. So I just had the magazines to go by. And we saw, me and my best friend who was watching at the same time, we saw Tommy Rich had been champion and we just couldn't figure it out. And the best thing that we could come up with was that it must have been an accident and the ref accidentally counted three. (laughs) And because there just didn't seem any way that Tommy Rich could have been an NWA world champion. And that's without knowing, you know, as much as I know now about Harley race and how all of that worked. It, It, even as a 13 year old complete, you know, not smart at all. It didn't seem right that he had that belt. You know, it's funny because we have a different perspective. I remember how I found out, okay, in late 1980 or towards the end of 1980, I got a subscription to The Wrestler and Inside Wrestling because I had a hard time finding the magazines. That was a huge mistake on my part because it took them forever to get here. Um, they were They came out two weeks apart, and of course, they waited for Inside Wrestling to come out before they sent out my the wrestler magazine and the, the magazine would literally be on the bookshelf for three or four weeks before I got access to it. So finally the Seven Eleven down the street from where I, where I lived started getting the wrestler. I just said, screw it. I'll buy it once and then I'll just have two when the other one shows up. So <laughs> I had just started driving. I had just turned 16. I stop and in my dad's car and I, I look and there's the wrestler and there's Tommy Rich with the NWA title. And I just kind of take a step back. I'm like, okay, it's the after magazines. I've seen Pat Patterson with the WWF title on the cover of the wrestler. So let's, you know, let's read the fine print before I say, oh my God, Tommy Rich is the NWA champion. And I opened it up and I look and what actually happened in my opinion was way, way worse than just, you know, Tommy doesn't isn't really the champion, but he has the belt. He won the title on Monday night, and he lost it on Friday night. And I'm sorry, uh, I might be that uber-obsessed fan that Eric Bischoff talks about, but, like, I had a major problem with this. And sure. to me, it, it, it's bad business. It exposes the business. If you walked away from Augusta Monday night, seeing that, wow, Tommy Rich is the NWA champion, and you buy the whole story, and you're like, wow, you know, Tommy's going to be defending the title all over the place. And then you tune in on Saturday 
to see that he's already lost the belt to Harley Race. Like, to me, that's a catastrophe. Like, why have a match on Monday or Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday when the result on Friday is going to completely nullify everything that happened that week? Is what I'm saying making sense? No, it makes perfect sense. And I think for me that because, you know, obviously there's always rumors and theories and, you know, uh, and speculation about how this came about. I think the way that it happened and the fact that he did not have the belt come Saturday and he was not on TV with the belt screams to me that this was definitely not sanctioned by the NWA board of governors, quote unquote, the guys that booked the title. It's not something, you know, the, the story. And I think it's credible is that Jim Crockett was in Japan and found out about this title switch and literally had to fly, you know, flew to the States the next day. He was traveling as soon as he found out. So I I don't believe that it was sanctioned. And I think it was about, hey, you know, let's let's get the belt back on race. And then on Saturday, let's have Jim Crockett. Because Jim Crockett was part of that segment with Tommy Rich and Gordon Soley mm-hmm. where they're watching clips on the match and they're talking it through. And it's a very contrite, very humble Tommy Rich. He's just you know, like real, yeah, real grateful. And that was a great match. And da, da, da. It was very clear that especially with Jim Crockett being there, they were, the NWA wanted to move on from that. So they were like, hey, Tommy, this is your moment. Um, Let's celebrate you winning the title. Now that's as close as you'll ever get to it um, (laughs) for for the rest of your career. And and I I think that's exactly what happens. I don't think that there was never any chance he was going to show up with that belt that Saturday night or any night after that. Well, yeah. And, you know, the way I look at it, too, like, let's say let's compare wrestling to boxing. OK, we have Roberto Duran against Sugar Ray Leonard. If if they're fighting on Monday and they're going to fight again on Friday, like the, the result of Monday doesn't matter. You, you, that's that's how I look at it. No, exactly. And they actually um, I mean, it was a series of matches. They uh, Rich defended the belt um, Wednesday and Thursday against race. And then lost it back on Friday. So I think the rumor that makes the most sense to me is that Barnett was losing money. Whatever the mid-range um, mid-range venue in Atlanta was for the weekly shows was was closed. So he had yep. to run Omni and he couldn't sell out the Omni every week. So they just had to figure out a way to get as much money as possible. He cut a deal with Race. And Tommy Rich held the belt for four days. That that's what makes sense to me. Yeah, I mean, uh, the story is that they used to run the Atlanta City Auditorium for yeah. wrestling, and they ran it either every Sunday night or every other Sunday night. And the the building was the perfect size. And then that closed, and they moved to the Omni where the Atlanta Hawks played. And the Omni was just too damn big. And they were running shows now every two or three weeks, and it was just, you know, like I said, it's it's just too big. You know, drawing 5,000 for wrestling is good until you, you see it with 110,000 empty seats. Exactly. All right. right. It, it makes sense. Now, you brought this up, Will, and, you know, it, it almost needs to be talked about. When I first started getting the Wrestling Observer late 86, you know, and I started making friends with wrestling fans and guys who knew what they were talking about, and you hear things that weren't in the Observer. And one of the first things I heard was a rumor about how 
Tommy Rich came into becoming NWA champion. And that rumor was that, and this guy just said it like it was, you know, a fact, like, you know, it's dark at night. Like, oh yeah, Tommy Rich did some kind of sexual favor to Jim Barnett and he got the title. And then as time went on, like I started learning about how the NWA championship worked. And I figured out that there is, well, there was no way that could have possibly happened. No, I, I mean, you could see a guy getting a top spot for a prolonged amount, you know, locally i can mm-hmm. see where you could make that oh well he's doing this and he's getting a push right i mean there's always some sort of favorites i mean nick gulas's kid or whatever all that um, yeah all that garbage but as again but as far as something like the nwa world title i i don't see it either because a i don't think i don't think if the board of governors had an opportunity to i don't think that they would have ever voted for tommy rich to be champion for much plus four days. I mean, they certainly wouldn't have given him an extended run. Yeah. I mean, I don't see Barnett convincing folks that this was a good business move because ultimately I, other than short term, I don't think it was a good business. No, I, I don't either. But so then I'm like, okay, you know, there's no way Jim Barnett is going to convince all of these guys that, you know, Hey, let's make Tommy rich champion a few days. You know, he, he could do that anyway, let alone be persuaded by Tommy rich to do it. But, Then maybe 15, 20 years ago, I started hearing the story about Harley. Now, this is what I heard, okay, that Harley Race just shows up in the dressing room and says, hey, let's have some fun for a week. Let's have the title change hands on Monday and then bring it back to race on Friday. And Barnett went along with it. And basically, this is Harley's way of taking the next step to becoming a seven-time world's heavyweight champion uh, uh, and thus beating Luthez is six times as world's heavyweight champion. I can see that. I mean, that makes sense. Um, I, I watched some of Tommy Rich's shoot interview, which was incredibly difficult. But Is it the RF interview? Uh, I don't think so. No, I think it's a more recent one. Okay. Um, I think it's a more recent one. He was, he was on a Zoom with somebody. I mean, it was, wasn't bad. Again, you just... Tommy Rich is great in small doses in any era or any age. And I just, I'm not a Tommy Rich fan. So I watched as much as I could. You know, he does talk about how he didn't have to put up the deposit for the belt, the, you know, race vouch for him and all that. But I mean, if you know, where's Tommy Rich going to go with the belt? And, you know, it's only four days. But obviously, race would have had to cooperate with it. It even makes more sense if it's his idea. Again, no one's going to get Harley Race to do something he doesn't want to do. Otherwise, Tommy Rich walks out of that ring with a broken arm or, or worse. So, no, it, everybody had to be cooperating. I, I don't know that we'll ever get the full story, but having it be race ideas does make a lot of sense, too. I mean, we'll, we'll never know the, the real story other than you know the fact that Race dropped the belt on Monday, got it back on Friday. But, I mean, it definitely smells like something that didn't go through the proper channels. As you said, uh, you know, Crockett had to fly back from Japan. And it kind of speaks volumes. Like, I don't think 10 years ago, when Harley Race held the title in 73, I don't think he would have dared to pull something like that off. I mean, Sam Mushnick would have, you know, he would have been in the end zone in Giant Stadium, for Christ's sake. <laughs> you know, no one's, do- yeah. no one's pulling that on Sam Mushnick. In 1974, yet in 1981, 
it's almost like, you know, no one's really in charge anymore and we're not afraid to do something like that. Like that wouldn't have happened a few years back. Rich wouldn't have gone along with it. Barnett wouldn't have gone along with it. And race wouldn't have gone along with it, even if it wasn't his idea. Right. No, I mean, if there's anything you know about Harley race, or I mean, even for the most part, Barnett, I mean, again, we're, we're talking about wrestling and, but I've never heard that much about Barnett and to say that, you know, he was flamboyant and he was a little goofy, but he always seemed fairly professional. And I mean, he was pretty successful promoting in Australia. It seems like he did a good job with Georgia. It just talks about what, how different professional wrestling is as a form of entertainment when you can speak as much about the back office machinations as you could about what happened in the ring. And they're equally as interesting. You know, in any entertainment, I mean, sometimes people get exploited. I mean, whether it be, you know, you have an actress in Hollywood. Okay, we have 100 girls who would be fine doing this role. I'm going to narrow it down to the ones that are willing to sleep with me. That happened in real life, okay? Right. It happened in wrestling to both males and females. I can tell you that I have never personally heard a story where Jim Barnett exploited somebody. I haven't heard anything, you know, and I've heard Cornette talk about him. I've read things. I've never, you know, again, you take it with wrestling. So, you know, wrestling promoters are probably not always the most up and up. Yeah. You know, and they're going to take their cut. But I never heard that he was just overly unethical or, you know, or or that bad. I mean, again, I think he made plenty of mistakes and not always the best booker, but I never heard anything about him that would lead me to believe that just outwardly exploit anybody any more than any other promoter would ever do anyway. No. And I have heard specific stories. I'm not going to name any, any names, but you know, this guy did this to this person and this specific guy did something to that person. I've never heard anything like that about Jim Barnett, which is not to say that it never happened, but I'm inclined to think that it didn't. No, I would definitely agree with you there, but I mean, in the end it's, you know, Tommy rich has got that, by his name for the rest of his life he's still making a living off of it in a way you know still able to talk about it you know and again it's given us something to talk about 40 years later and again i think that's a testament to what the hold that the sport has on folks like you and me who really have taken the time to understand what it is not just from what's in the ring but the psychology and everything else behind it is it's just part of a mythology that you don't get that in any other form of entertainment for the most part. No, I, I agree with you. And you're hundred percent right. You know, let's talk about guys who got quickies with the title. Some guys benefited from it. Like the iron Sheik was WWF champion for four weeks. You'd have people think that he held it for four years. It, it definitely benefited his career. Kerry Von Erich to some extent, same thing. Those pictures with him and the NWA championship are, are never going away. Right. Ronnie Garvin had the title for three months. Uh, Tommy Rich had the title for four days. In my opinion, for whatever reason, it seemed those title reigns seem to have tainted those wrestlers. Yeah, I mean, I don't know so much about Iron Sheik because they really just kind of transitioned him out straight out of the, you know, from the belt into that feud with Sergeant Slaughter. So I think he may, and, and then he had a pretty good run, you know, after that with Nikolai Volkov, I think it definitely killed Ronnie Garvin's career. I think the whole way that they booked that, you know, is like, 
taking him off the road and he's training for the rematch. Yeah, I think that was a big death. I don't think it was a crowning achievement for Ronnie Garvin to get that belt. I think it was the wrong person at the wrong time. And I'm surprised, actually, that Flair went along with it the way that he did. Well, I mean, I think, not to get off the Tommy Rich subject, I think even the densest mark, to use that term, could see Ronnie Garvin winning the NWA title September 1987 was just a way to create an interesting Starcade where Ric Flair regains the title. I think anyone could have seen right through that. Yeah. Um, Another guy that had a a short run, Ivan Koloff, which I don't think it ruined his career. I don't think it defined his career either. I mean, you know, he's a guy that beat Bruno Sammartino, almost caused a riot when he won that match. But it's almost like it just never happened. You know, after a certain period of time, they just never really talked about Ivan Koloff or his credentials of, of having won the belt against, you know, in fact, a, an actual legend of the sport. Actually, we had John Jance on the show who was present at Madison Square Garden when Koloff won it. And he said there wasn't a riot. Just people couldn't believe it. It was oh, like really? a stunned silence. Yeah, I've seen that match. And again, it, it's crazy to watch that match now in context with how matches go today, because it is a very, very slow, very plotting match. But I mean, the, the house was pretty excitable for that. So I, I've seen that. And um, I don't know if we'll have the time to talk about that WWF card. But I mean, it, it's interesting. Those cards in Madison Square Garden, those matches are very interesting to watch in retrospect. Uh, slow and plotting absolutely <laughs> defines 1970s WWF. I remember I had a friend over, oh, maybe 15 years ago, and he got a show from 1976 off WWE. It was then uh, WWE 24-7. It was a show from 76 with the main event, Bruno and Parisi against Ivan Koloff and superstar Billy Graham, and he hadn't seen it. And I'm like, okay, I'm all excited to see this because it's my childhood, but it's going to be two hours of nothing happening. And <laughs> I talked to him like a week later. He's like, you're right. Nothing happens. These guys just, you know, lock up and, and that's it. And everything's moved so slowly. But what can I say? I'm yeah. going to share before we go to uh, the Facebook page. I'm going to share something with you and the audience. Will in 1981, I, I can only speak for myself. I absolutely would have bought. Tommy Rich as NWA World's Heavyweight Champion long-term. I just, in the magazines, I'd never seen him wrestle on TV, except maybe once on that old Lars Anderson program, World League Wrestling. But the way the magazines portrayed him for like the last three years, he was the up-and-coming superstar. And then, you know, by 1980-81, he had achieved or had established himself as a superstar. And I kind of saw him as, you know, the next big thing in wrestling. And is it fair to say it was all downhill for Tommy Rich from here? Maybe. From a respect of titles and stuff, yeah. I mean, he went on to have the feud with Buzz Sawyer was after this, right? The one that yes. ended in that. Yeah. So he went on to have two, you know, the the blood feud, for lack of a better term, with Buzz Sawyer, I think. I think that defines his career more than winning the belt. And then he had a really good feud, which was probably more of a carbon copy of the Buzz Sawyer feud, but he had a really good feud with DiBiase. So I think, I think he had some good moments after that, but once you've held the belt, you know, it's hard to figure out where do they put you after that? Your former NWA world champion 
but you're certainly not Dory Funk Jr. And you're certainly not, you know, Terry Funk or Jack Briscoe. How do you fit in in that pantheon, especially if you're still active? That that's um that has to be tough on the bookers. How you how are you gonna book this guy? Yeah, I remember, you know, getting, I finally got uh, Georgia Wrestling on cable starting October 1981, and they pushed Tommy Rich as a top contender to Ric Flair. Hey, here's a guy, he's already beaten Harley Race once. There's no reason he can't beat Ric Flair. And it felt like Ric Flair versus Tommy Rich were like the two top young superstars in wrestling. And you're looking at the future, and I could see Tommy Rich winning it back at that point. But then, not to pile on Tommy Rich, his weight started to become a concern. I mean, I remember watching it with my friends and going, hey, he's got a little bit of a spare tire going <laughs> on. And that just got worse. And, and by the middle of 1983, he just wasn't in top shape the way a top yeah. guy in the business needed to be. No, he was never going to be superstar Billy Graham. But at the same time, you know, Tommy, you got to you, you gotta do some cardio. You got to step back from the beer. You got to hit the iron. And it didn't look like he was doing any of those things. Right. No. And, and he even, you know, in one of the interview that I read about before doing the show with you, you know, he talked about that. He's like, you know, they really I, I would not have been cut out to be a traveling NWA world champion, because if you look at races schedule, you know, if, if you go back and look at his schedule leading up to that week and then a month after you know tommy rich is like i would have missed flights and as nwa world champion you can't miss flights Mm -hmm. you have to make the shows rick flair was as an example of some guy that could have that nightlife who could party but he also had the self-discipline the same self-discipline that would make him get up and do 500 free squats a day also got him up to make the airplane no matter how hungover he was I mean, maybe Ric Flair missed a couple of shows, but I don't read a lot about him missing a lot of shows. And I think that's the difference is you you have to be dedicated to that travel schedule more than just being the champion. You've got to want to be on the road all the time. Ric Flair missed a show due to an injury in like 90 or 91. And the consensus was, oh, my God, Ric Flair finally missed a show. Right. And, And you were talking about like, you know, Tommy Rich admitting and i think this is this is good of him that he would not have been able to maintain that schedule i mean i just heard an interview from don morocco when he was like you know someone mentioned to him oh yeah you know you were brought up as a potential nwa champion and morocco came right out and he's like no way i could not have handled that schedule you know jack briscoe had the belt for a while and he lived the schedule and he said forget it i don't want to do this anymore terry funk won it and terry funk couldn't you know think about this Terry Funk didn't want to deal with the schedule anymore after like a year and Harley embraced it. Flair embraced it as well. Yeah. And they were just two different, you know, I think for different reasons, Harley race. I was actually thinking about this earlier this week. And I'm, I'm glad this came up. Harley race to me defined the NWA world title. The NWA world title defined Ric Flair. And I think that's why they make such great, but very different champions because they embrace different parts of what it means to be a champion, you know, and anybody that can do that schedule. Cause if you just go through and you read races schedule, you know, for any given month or in his reigns or flares, it's superhuman that you can go and do that, especially in an era where you can't just 
book things on the fly on your phone. I mean, you have to work hard to get all that stuff straightened out. Yeah. I mean, I remember a story, Dory Funk Jr. told where he had a couple of days off. He was in Amarillo and he had a booking in St. Louis, but there was snow in the forecast. And this is before he won the championship. And he was supposed to wrestle for Sam Mushnick. And Dory's like, wow, there's going to be a, a, a snowstorm. I might not make my booking. And his dad says to him, he's like, you get on the train and you spend two days on that train going to St. Louis. You do not miss St. Louis. And Dory said that was a, a very important lesson to him and a reason why he became NWA champion. You know, you just you don't miss a booking. No, you show up. If your name's on the card. You show up. This hour goes by so fast. I just looked and we're like 55 minutes into the show. And I wanted to go to our Facebook page and talk a little bit about some of the comments people made. Rick Nathan, can I just say Tommy Rich, as popular as he was with the young ladies, never screamed heavyweight champion material to me ever, not even for a microsecond. What do you think of that? I think that goes back to you know how we introed this. Even without knowing what I know now, even just as a 13-year-old Mark, I never believed that that was something that should have happened. So I completely agree. Yeah. And you know what? I, I think I mentioned this. I totally bought Tommy Rich's end. I would have bought him as long-term NWA champion. And people say, Tommy Rich, oh, you know, he's too Southern for the WWF. My friends and I liked Tommy Rich. Yeah, we are a very small sampling, but it's 1981 and Tommy's the biggest star of world championship wrestling on, on Georgia TV. And we bought him as the top guy. So, I mean, different people see things different ways. Yeah. I mean, and, and I, I didn't have the benefit of cable or, or, you know, again, even really being able to see him work. So my first impression was just purely based on what I knew from the magazines and the pictures that I had seen. So I, that's what I was going off of. All right. Frank Doss. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm wondering how Tommy feels about Buzz Sawyer getting into the WWE Hall of Fame before him. Tommy was definitely the bigger draw, obviously. What do you think, Will? I would put Rich in before I put in Buzz Sawyer. I, I guess Sawyer's in as part of the legacy stuff. I never was impressed with his work. I was less impressed by a lot of the stories that I heard after. And, you know, guys would want to train with him or he would, you know, offer to train you take the money and not train the guy. So I, I never felt like he was really that high quality of a person, much less a wrestler. So if everything else being even, I would say Tommy Rich probably has a bigger argument to get in than Buzz Sawyer. All right. A couple of things. I mean, Buzz Sawyer is absolutely, I mean, it's, it's a head spinner. Buzz Sawyer getting into the WWF hall of fame. I mean, but again, it's Tommy shouldn't be bothered by that, number one, because yeah. the WWE Hall of Fame is whoever Vince wants to put in <laughs> sure. in whatever mood he's in. And that's it. It's totally random. But my favorite Buzz Sawyer story is he's in the Carolinas wrestling and he agrees and he accepts money to train this kid named Terry Allen, Magnum T.A. And shortly after the training begins, Buzz got an offer to go wrestle in Portland and he took it and he just booked. He didn't like let Terry Allen know. Well, Terry Allen reads in the magazine that buzz is wrestling in Portland and he drives out there and he shows up <laughs> and buzz, buzz was a tough guy. He was a, an accomplished amateur in, in Florida 
But Magnum was also a tough guy. He wrestled at Old Dominion, and Terry Allen, I, I don't know if he just showed up at the arena or showed up at his doorstep, but Buzz was like, oh, yeah, I, we'll continue training now that you're here and I'm here. And that was how <laughs> Terry got into the business. Yeah, But, yeah, that's the thing. I, I never, you know, Tommy, I know he's not listening, but he should not worry about whether or not yeah. – he got in and buzzed in. It just doesn't yeah, make I, any sense. I do have a Buzz Sawyer story. Um, it would have been Raleigh Dorton Arena. Um, he was wrestling an opening match against Sam Houston. Me and my buddy were sitting ringside, and I was on a roll that night with the heckling, and I was heckling the hell out of Sam Houston. Uh-oh. Uh, I don't remember what the line was, but it made Buzz Sawyer shake his head and chuckle. And that was pretty much it. That's the first time anybody in the ring had ever reacted to anything that I said. So I got a <laughs> kick out of that. That's excellent. I, I've never gotten a reaction out of a wrestler. And one last thing, like I said, this hour absolutely flies by. Lazlo Takak says, people seem to say it hurt his career. I disagree. It was intended to help his career and would have if he wasn't so hell-bent on hurting his career himself. When a pretty boy loses his pretty and doesn't do anything to compensate, you get Tommy Rich. It's a little bit harsh, but it's not off the mark. No, it's not. I mean, I know he had to bounce back, and I think he had a decent – he did some Smoky Mountains. I know he had a couple you know, flourishes of, of his old self after that, but I know when he, he showed up in mid-Atlantic, I want to say 84, 85, somewhere – mid 80s for a cup of coffee and he was not impressive at all so no but i no i think he's the first one to admit he did as much to damage his career as anybody else could have it's just if you if you're going to drink and you're going to do all that then you have to compensate for it if you don't have the discipline to do it you're going to end up where he ended up yeah well we'll we'll end the tommy rich conversation on a positive note and that is that you know dave melter personally told me he grew up going to the shows in san francisco and when Tommy Rich came in and did a spot, the attendance spiked by like 5,000 people. And that tells you, and this is an 81, 82, and it tells sure. you, A, how popular Tommy Rich was, and B, what a strong force cable television was becoming. Yeah, I mean, he could draw. I mean, that, you can't knock what he was capable of. It's, it's kind of where he ended up. But, I mean, when he was on top, I mean, and again, when you've got that brand behind you and you can be in that many houses, it would be hard not to be popular at that point. So he, he did the best he could with what he had, and he probably did a lot better than a lot of people thought he would. And well put. Will, I want to thank you for taking the time and being a great guest once again on Stick to Wrestling. I really appreciate it, John. It's always fun. It does go by quickly. I do want to say we, we didn't get a chance to talk about it, but go on YouTube and watch that Pat Patterson, Sergeant Slaughter, Street Fight blow-off match because... That was awesome, and if you if you have me on in a few months, I'd like to talk about that one. You know what? We'll end with this, too. I, just going back, I said to Willis before the show, I said, you know what? We'll talk about this Augusta card, and if we have time, we'll talk about the WWF May 4th, 1981 show, which obviously we didn't have time to do, but that 40th anniversary is obviously coming up, and Sergeant Slaughter versus Pat Patterson in that alley fight was an incredible match, and Will, I was lucky enough to see the exact same match maybe two weeks later in Holy Cross Stadium in Worcester, Massachusetts. They did the exact same thing. They both left in ambulances. It was pro wrestling nirvana for 15-year-old me. For a 1981 match, that is one of the better matches I've ever seen on a Madison Square Garden card. It's brutal. It's everything you want. And Sergeant Slaughter 
he bleeds like I I would say the only other time I've seen him bleed like that was in that blow off match with um, Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood in Green or uh, in Charlotte or whatever that cage match. Greensboro. Was. Yeah, Greensboro. Um, when he bladed, he he really got the most out of it, but he certainly did in that match with. Uh, and uh, that was just a great feud from, from beginning to end. And uh, I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to thank our producer, Lightning Lou Kippelman, for all the great work he does. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We'll see you next week. Get vaccinated. This concludes our podcast day. 